Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist, hosted by an abnormal psychologist, Dr. Colby Taylor. So abnormal that he just referred to himself in third person. Depersonalization from a few episodes ago, maybe? Um, Anyways, in the last episode, we discussed neurodevelopmental disabilities, which in the DSM-5 include intellectual disabilities, which we discussed in depth in the last episode, communication disorders, autism spectrum disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, motor disorders, and specific learning disorder, which will be the focus of today's episode. So we abbreviate specific learning disorder as SLD. And you might say, I thought it was specific learning disability, not learning disorder. And you'd be right. Really, both are right. In the DSM-5, it's specific learning disorder. But a lot of people uh, say learning disability. And where I live in Tennessee, the Department of Education calls it a specific learning disability. So both are right. So potato, potato. But this discrepancy between the DSM-5, which again is published by the American Psychiatric Association, and State Department of Education's eligibility categories is going to highlight differences between definitions and criteria between the APA and school systems that are going to appear throughout this episode. And with most disorders, I'd say the DSM-5 trumps other nosologies, other diagnostic systems. But with specific learning disorders, the diagnostic utility is often in offering special education services in the school system. So in this case, I'd say the school system's eligibility criteria actually trump the DSM-5 because at the end of the day, it's the school that's going to provide intervention services. Okay, so you may already be able to see that SLDs can get complicated. Much of the language that state departments of education use, like in Tennessee, Uh, stems from federal legislation, and particularly the Individuals with Disabilities Education Improvement Act, which we acronym cutely as IDEA, even though there's technically an extra I in it. Um, IDEA was originally passed in 2004, and here's some of the language from it. IDEA provides the federal definition that governs the classification and services provided to individuals with disabilities in the school setting. The term specific learning disability means a disorder in one or more of the basic psychological processes involved in understanding or in using language spoken or written. Disorder may uh, may manifest itself in an imperfect ability to speak or to listen, speak, write, spell, or do mathematical calculations. The term includes conditions such as perceptual disabilities, brain injury, minimal brain dysfunction, dyslexia, and developmental aphasia. The term does not include a learning problem that is primarily the result of visual, hearing, or motor disabilities, of mental retardation, which we know from the last episode was changed to intellectual disability in 2013, of emotional disturbance, or of environmental, cultural, or economic disadvantage. And I said mental retardation was changed to intellectual disability in 2013, in the DSM-5, actually Rose's Law was in 2010, so I guess, uh, but IDA was published in 2004, so that's why you still have that carryover language. Anyways, this language brings up some important concepts related to SLD. First, a learning disorder refers to a disorder or delayed development in one or more of the processes of speech, language, reading, writing, arithmetic, or other school subject. Uh, Second, it's not the result of intellectual disability sensory deprivation, or cultural and instructional factors. You can't really have uh, intellectual disability and SLD. Uh, And third, individuals with SLD typically have average or above average intelligence, 
and below average academic achievement in one or more key academic domains. So I just mentioned some terms like intelligence and academic achievement. We talked about intelligence in the last episode, right? We can think about it as your capacity to learn. You can be really intelligent, but never have gone to school before. You can have a great capacity to learn, but you haven't used it yet. You just have sort of innate smarts. Whereas with academic achievement, this is sort of what you have learned. This is sort of book smarts or academic smarts. And normally we'd expect the two to go hand in hand, right? If you have a great capacity to learn, we'd expect you hopefully are learning a lot. So this brings up how uh, we used to diagnose SLD. And some states still do this. I think there's a handful of states that still do this. But it's called the discrepancy model. And this is where we have an unexpected discrepancy, a gap between your intelligence, which is your capacity to learn, and some part of your academic achievement, what you actually have learned. So essentially, it's an unexpected academic underachievement. And we're usually talking about academic achievement in a narrow, specific way for a specific academic subject. So like you have an IQ of 130. 130 would be top 3%. And we look at your reading achievement, and it's a 70. That would be the bottom 3% on the normal curve. That's a huge discrepancy. Traditionally, we're not talking about in a broad sense that you have an IQ of 130, and you're in the bottom 3% in reading, writing, math, and every other academic subject. Uh, that sort of takes specific out of the SLD name. In a case like that, we might say that you're broadly a slow learner. Though technically, and I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with this, you could be diagnosed with SLD in every academic area at the same time. Uh, I think that points to broader problems, so, so that's why I'm kind of in disagreement with it. Anyways, so with the discrepancy model, we give an IQ test and then a standardized measure of academic achievement. And we'd use a regression formula to see if there's a significant difference between your intelligence and your academic achievement. So if you have an IQ of 130, you might qualify for an SLD in reading with a reading score of 100. Even though 100 is average, and you might say is no problem for most people, uh, because this person would basically be gifted uh, with their IQ, and a 100 in reading um, would not be hand-in-hand -hand with their gifted intelligence, right? Uh, anyways, most states have moved away from this discrepancy model. Tennessee did it in around 2015, and I'll talk about what we replaced the discrepancy model with in a little bit. Uh, back to IDEA for a second. With IDEA, which again is the Department of Education guidelines, we have eight different areas of SLD. There are oral expression, listening communicate or listening comprehension, written expression, basic reading skills, reading fluency skills, reading comprehension, mathematics calculation, and mathematics problem solving. So you can see that three of the eight areas are related to reading. SLD, SLD and reading is going to be the most widely researched SLD. So I'm going to devote the entire next episode of this podcast uh, to SLD and reading, uh, which is more popularly called dyslexia. So with IDEA, we have eight areas. With the DSM-5, we're going to have three areas. And really, it's one diagnosis that has three specifiers. And the specifiers are with impairment in reading, with impairment in written expression, and with impairment in mathematics. And the impairment in these areas needs to have persisted for at least six months, despite the provision of interventions that target these difficulties. Uh, these impairments must also have been documented before the age of 17. And this doesn't mean that you can't be diagnosed with an SLD as an adult. It happens all the time. It just means that you have to be able to sort of trace breadcrumbs of symptoms back to your childhood. 
So you might have struggled some with math as a child, but you were able to skate by. You developed compensatory strategies and never needed a diagnosis. But you get to college and you struggle mightily with calculus in your math courses. The compensatory strategies you used in childhood no longer work, and you're no longer able to tread water in math. Since we trace your struggles, or we can trace your struggles in math back to your childhood, you can receive the diagnosis. Also, these learning difficulties are not better accounted for by intellectual disabilities. Uncorrected visual or auditory acuity, other mental or neurological disorders, psychosocial adversity, lack of proficiency in language of academic instruction, or inadequate educational instruction. So this brings up a few things. I didn't mention that before I do a psychoeducational assessment, I require current hearing and vision screening results. This is to make sure that the learning difficulties are not because the child is having trouble seeing or having trouble hearing. Another thing this brings up is that if you're in private practice, you can't just give a couple of tests and diagnose with SLD. You need academic information. You need to collaborate with the child's school. You need proof that the child is receiving appropriate instruction in school and is not responding to interventions. With SLD, the prevalence is between 5 to 15% of school-age children and 4% of adults. I'm not sure about the discrepancy between children and adults in this prevalence, but it might be that SLD is more diagnosed and monitored now than it was several decades ago, so adults in their 50s and 60s would never have been screened like children today. Uh, SLD is twice as common in males than in females, and it may lead to increased suicide in adolescents. And this has received more research in the past few years, it's something that I keep in the back of my head when I'm doing a suicidal risk assessment. Uh, also, low birth weight and prenatal nicotine exposure are risk factors for SLD. So I mentioned that most states have moved away from the discrepancy model to diagnose SLD. What we use now is a model called response to intervention, which we abbreviate as RTI. RTI operates in the school system and the general education setting and is a tiered model. We have Tier 1, Tier 2, and Tier 3. Uh, tier 1 is where most kids fall. It's where 80 to 90% of children fall. And these children are learning at grade level or above grade level. And we have to screen the whole school to find out which children are functioning here. So if you go to a school, you might find children taking what we call benchmarking assessments a few times each year, usually three times per year, in the fall, at the beginning of the school year, in the winter, and then again in the spring. Benchmarking is sort of a quick and dirty screener to identify how children are doing in reading, writing, and math. And a lot of it is administered on the computer. Uh, iReady, iMath, Star Reading, Stanford Math, EasyCBM, AmesWeb, uh, these can all be used to benchmark. So with benchmarking, we can identify the bottom 20% of children and then split them away into Tier 2 or Tier 3. Tier 2 is usually the lowest 5 to 20% of children in an academic subject. So if you're at the 15th, like the 15th percentile in reading, you might receive targeted interventions at this level. You might receive reading interventions for an hour per week or so in a small group setting. This is still the general education environment. Uh, you might also be assessed more often. Here we use curriculum-based measurements, and these are even quicker measures of academic progress than benchmarking. A lot of times they can be administered every week and in only a couple of minutes. So with these curriculum-based measurements, which we abbreviate as CBM, we can track kids' progress. Hopefully the child is improving a little bit per week. And CBM is really based on data. So whoever is doing the intervention might say, little Johnny was reading 10 words per minute the first week of intervention, 
15 words per minute the second week and 20 words per minute the third week. And the interventionists can grab this and they can see it's sloping upward. So we may say improvement is being made. Uh, we call this a slope analysis. We can also do a gap analysis, which is saying how far little Johnny is behind his grade level and how long it might take him to catch up. So even though little Johnny is sloping upwards, uh, if his grade level is 100 words per minute, it would take him years maybe to close the gap between where he is and where he needs to be. Eventually, um, if everything progresses okay, little Johnny might go back to tier one if his slope is going upwards and if he's closing the gap. But let's say that the small group intervention isn't working. The slope is flat or it's even trending downwards and the gap between little Johnny and his peers is growing. Then after maybe 10 weeks of tier two, uh, and each district makes you enact your uh, intervention for a set amount of weeks just to give it time to work. And then we might send uh, little Johnny to tier three. And tier three of RTI involves the most intensive interventions for the lowest 5% or so of children in an academic area. And these children are going to receive more interventions and more one-on-one -on -one intervention. Uh, again, we'll track data using CBM. If the child is sloping up and closing the gap, as we hope they are, uh, we can send them down to tier two. If they're not, if after 10 to 20 weeks, uh, they're not making progress, we might consider conducting a full psychoeducation evaluation to determine whether or not the child has SLD and whether they meet special education eligibility criteria. So RTI has some cool features, right? We're tracking data, it's data informed. We're looking at slopes and we're looking at gaps. We're giving the child uh, varying levels of intervention from small group to one-on-one. -on -one. The child can move back and forth between tiers, right? It's fluid. Uh, if the child's responding to intervention, um, it might not be an SLD. It might just be that the child needed you know, a little extra help to catch up. Um, but there are some problems with RTI. So in Memphis, where we have some schools with very low academic achievement, we have to decide whether we're comparing the child to the children in the same school, which we call localized norms, or to children in the rest of the nation, which we call national norms. And let's say we have a child at a low-performing school that's at the 80th percentile for their school using local norms. You might say, this is great, right? This kid doesn't need help. They're doing better than 80% of their school. Uh, but let's say that we look at them a little deeper using national norms, and we find that they're at the 5th percentile nationally because it's such a low-performing school. In this case, we'd say they need a lot of extra intervention. But what if you have an entire school that nationally is at Tier 3? We don't have the resources to provide one-on-one -on -one intervention for that many kids. So schools might triage and only focus on the bottom 10% of kids in a school. But what if the kids at the 80th percentile at that school using localized norms actually have a fighting chance to go to college and they're the ones being ignored because they're not the ones dragging down the school's standardized test scores. So this can pose a headache. Also, if you use local norms, let's say the kid at the 80th percentile um, for their school decides to transfer to a higher performing school and is now all of a sudden in the fifth percentile compared to their peers at the new school. In this case, the child just magically moved from tier one to tier three when nothing changed academically uh, with the child. The child just moved. Um, we also have sort of uh, the amount of time it takes to enact RTI. It might take eight weeks at tier two and 10 to 20 weeks at tier three. You know, each district is gonna have different requirements. And that's a lot of the school year. And we're waiting a lot of the school year to see if the child essentially fails to respond to intervention, when it would be more beneficial for the child to provide a diagnosis and special education services uh, sooner than later. 
And in districts where you have low attendance, um, sometimes you have to start all over with your data, maybe even after 10 weeks of data collection or 18 weeks of data collection. Let's say the child misses school for three weeks. Uh, we can't say that the child is no longer making progress because the intervention isn't working because it might just be due to low attendance. So we might have to start over. And that's really frustrating. And sometimes it takes years of collecting data to demonstrate that a child is not responding to interventions. It can be really frustrating. Also, with the discrepancy model, a child with an IQ of 130 uh, could have an, uh, you know, an, a score of 85 in reading. And with the discrepancy model, we'd say a third percentile in intelligence with a 130 should not be scoring at like the 15th percentile in reading. Uh, we'd find this child extra help. But with RTI, an 85 in reading might still show up as tier one. So this child is given a pat on the back and sent on uh, when they have the intellectual capacity to do so much better in reading. Also, we might have a child that has a 75 in intelligence, which is like the lowest fifth or 5% of intelligence. And a score of 5% uh, or the fifth percentile in reading is actually lining up with that child's intellectual capability. But with RTI, we're not really looking uh, at intelligence. And that child is identified as tier three. So what we find is a lot of the tier two and tier three resources in the schools are going towards children with IQs in the 70s and 80s. They're actually performing hand in hand with their IQ scores. So RTI is one of those things that looks really good on paper. You know, conceptually, it looks great. But practically, and especially in underachieving school districts, it poses problems. Okay, so according to the DSM-5, we can have specifiers of with impairment in mathematics, with impairment in written expression, and with impairment in reading. SLD with impairment in mathematics is sometimes called dyscalculia, and it includes difficulty with procedural problems, frequent errors in understanding math concepts, and difficulty sequencing the steps of complex problems. It also includes semantic memory problems, difficulty remembering math facts, visual spatial problems in difficulty reproducing numbers, um, so basically everything from counting to calculus, from working single-digit addition problems to figuring out complex word problems. Um, SLD with impairment in written expression is sometimes called dysgraphia. And dysgraphia includes problems with handwriting, spelling, and productivity. Problems in composition, in text structure, in sentence structure, in word usage. Uh, you may feel overwhelmed getting started with writing. You may struggle to organize or use proper mechanics. You may struggle to develop your ideas fluently. You may struggle to compose legible products. And you may submit written work that is too brief. And dysgraphia is probably the least understood and least researched SLD. Uh, at least for me, it's hard to conceptualize an SLD that includes everything from handwriting to essay writing as a single disorder. Finally, SLD with impairment in reading is called dyslexia. And this is uh, going to be the focus of our next podcast. All right, let's check the mailbag. We have some great questions on dissociative identity disorder. Okay, so I'll read uh, what we have. It says, I, for one, do get skeptical when I hear people having a lot of alters. For example, there is a girl on YouTube who documents her life while, having, while living with other, her alters. Um, she stated she had over 30 plus living uh, inside of her for each of her traumas. I'm not sure how much truth there is in that, but having over 30 plus personalities that you have to keep track of seems exhausting. From my understanding, alters can have different personalities, genders, roles, sexualities, and ages. For example, a girl named Jessica, the host at age 18, has a guy alter named Ben, who's age 22. 
And he deals specifically with the trauma she experienced in high school when she was bullied a lot. Um, whenever she went to school, she would switch to Ben so she could handle all the stress she had. Is that possible? Like, can people form an altar to deal with traumatic experiences so they don't have to? And here's my response to that. Uh, this is a great question. Um, the is it possible question, I guess, is going to be based on whether you believe in dissociative identity disorder or not. But let's argue for its existence. Uh, if we were to conceptualize it as primarily a trauma-related disorder, then it makes sense you would experience dissociation in certain contexts or environments. In the case of Jessica that you just mentioned, school is a traumatic environment. So the dissociation could occur there and not in other environments. And psychoanalysts might argue this sort of repression is an ego defense mechanism. And I guess in Jessica's instance, the altar is sort of a trauma scapegoat. You're externalizing your trauma onto a different person. Jessica is externalizing her trauma onto her altar of Ben. And this is interesting, right? Because a school-age female who is bullied creates the altar of a male who is older when she's in high school. And you can maybe see the protective value of this. Um, so here's the second question. Um, is it possible for a person to remember anything that their altar said or did? And here's my response. Um, again, the answer to this question, is it possible, depends on whether you believe in the validity of the DID diagnosis. And case studies I've read uh, on this give it sort of an it depends answer. Some people can remember their alters, and this would be sort of an autobiographical memory, while others seem to have complete amnesia for the experiences of their alters. And this dissociation seems to exist on a continuum from what I've read. With most people having fuzzy recollections of their alters that might be recalled with more clarity, with prompts and cues. And this can, start, uh, this can spark you know, deep conversation about the nature of consciousness. It can be really philosophical. Uh, there are actually a few items on the Dissociative Experiences Scale. Uh, it's abbreviated DES. You can access it online. Um, that deal with dissociative amnesia. Uh, with some DID cases, you have alters that speak with different accents than their host. Uh, they have different handwriting, or they might even write with an entirely different hand than their host. Uh, for others, their alters you know, behave in ways that are really superficial, uh, like superficially changed. Um, anyways, uh, another question uh, from the writer of this letter um, is, do alters have different boyfriends slash girlfriends? How would a person with DID date? Um, all right, so I've seen some case studies of people with DID that have alters with different sexual orientations in their hosts. And changes in sexual behavior actually seem to be pretty common in the relatively rare condition of DID. Um, maybe because people with DID feel safer in expressing certain sexual preferences through their alter rather than through their host. I guess it's sort of de-individuation the de-individuation effect that you might have talked about in social psychology. All right. Another question I just found interesting while researching this is that every altar has a role. This is, again, the letter writer. For example, one altar can be the one that maintains order for every altar, and another can be a peacekeeper. And so I think this is really interesting. And this brings up a viewpoint from many psychologists, um, and it's that multiple personalities are more metaphorical than real with dissociative identity disorder. And I guess we all have you know, certain personalities for different situations, right? Sometimes we're in an environment that might require us to be a hard ass. And in another environment, we might have to be humble and meek. Uh, in personality, we call this self-monitoring. And obviously, self-monitoring doesn't involve complete dissociation. Uh, but I can sort of see a connection here.
Um, anyways, uh, great questions. Uh, if you have any mailbag questions or you have any episode requests, uh, you can send them to me at ctaylo41 at cvu.edu. Uh, finally, I almost forgot. Um, here's an update on my half marathon I did this weekend. So I eclipsed the two hour mark. So I'm super pumped about that. Uh, my time was like an hour and 57 minutes. Uh, and I actually won first place for my age group, but I don't think I had much competition. Uh, since Viking Cooking was the sponsor of the half marathon, they gave me the spoon. This is first place on it. And everybody was super nice on the running route. Uh, it was nice getting away for a night to Greenwood, Mississippi. So cool experience, great weather. That's it for this episode. Until the next one, take care and stay well.